0: Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about psychiatry. Our guest, Bruce Levine, his new book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Free Thinking and Radical Enlightenment. Quite a title. Bruce Levine, welcome back to Talk World Radio.
1: Great to be back with you, David.
0: Oh, without reason, does that mean that psychiatry is unreasonable or that it has no reason to exist or both? Well, it's funny <laughs> It's funny you said that. I, I, When I was anticipating that I'd be talking to folks just like you, I, I assumed that
1: was going to be an initial question. And the answer is both. I mean, initially, when I came up with that title, it was the part of just their, their lacking reason, their lacking rationality. That's part of the whole problem of the crisis. But then, obviously, as soon as, about 20 seconds after I came up with that title, I thought, like, well, there's going to be a lot of people saying, you're, you're saying that there's no reason for this profession. And that that I will leave open to debate. You know I mean, <laughs> Spinoza himself was not an abolitionist. He was not like, you know, his his concern was that if you got rid of anything, you know, from his, his watching what happened in England uh, 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 when they got rid of the kings and they put in Cromwell. And so... Spinoza's feeling was it wasn't necessarily his fantastic thing. He would have anticipated Stalin after the czar, he would have anticipated Robespierre. And so I don't I'm not like I don't know what would happen if we just got rid of psychiatry. So but it's certainly the main thing i'm trying to get across is that there's the book is app you know psychiatry is a profession without it's not using reason here and that's part of why it's the crisis exists. I,
0: I think we should probably explain to people what spinoza has to do with uh 21st century psychiatry and why why spinoza is so central to the book is the idea that basic reasoning that people have been doing for 400 years can fix psychiatry or is it that spinoza has incredible insights that everybody has overlooked for hundreds of years.
1: Well, again, a little of both. I think, again, for for your audience who doesn't know anything about Spinoza, maybe I should start with People that. People don't know
0: anything about anything, so, yeah.
1: Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> So Spinoza is a Dutch philosopher. He was born in uh, 1632, so 17th century Dutch philosopher. But people have to understand back back in that era, philosopher meant you cared about everything. So he cared a lot about science. Yeah, he did he did experiments himself. He talked to the famous the uh, scientists of his era, and so part of the thing about Spinoza was that he that it was an interesting guy to pick. Number one, because he was called the apostle of reason, and that's what psychiatry needs some more reason applied to it. But he also he cared not just about about what we commonly think of when we think of philosophy metaphysics and epistemology and these kinds of things but he cared a lot about psychology so that's one of the things when I first got interested in Spinoza when I was a young guy in my late teens there's two things that really got me interested in him. one was his life which was unbelievable you know for fascinating we can talk about that later but the other part was that he was an early cognitive behavioral therapist before and I think much more interesting he was influenced by the Stoics but he also but he but he his ideas about cognitive behavioral therapy I think are much more powerful much more uh, interesting but the other part why Spinoza probably the most important part of him was that how he initially got in most trouble before he wrote his magnum opus the, Th- the ethics which talks much more psychological was he wrote this thing in 1670 called the theological political treatise so he's very much cared about the effect of a theology, these ecclesiastic authorities who were oppressing all his buddies and himself, you know, curtailing free speech, and he cared about their influence on politics. And so, one of the things that was really clear to me that was much people thought about it a lot more in 1960s, 1970s. They seem to have forgotten that psychiatry ha- is this institution that has a lot of powerful uh, political role in our society. And I think Spinoza's analysis of, like, the role of clergy politically in his day applies almost 100% to the role of psychiatry today. So those are a few reasons why I think Spinoza is interesting. There's a bunch more. There, There are a
0: couple of mental illnesses, Bruce Levine, that have been eliminated, right? Right, right. So
1: one of the ones that's probably most famously eliminated was homosexuality which was a mental illness up to 1973. So that uh, psychiatry, people there's a thing called the DSM, which is the bible of psychiatry. It's commonly called the bible. It's, it's published by the American Psychiatric Association, which is the guild of America's psychiatrists. And the DSM stands for Diagnostic, Statistical, Manual, Mental Disorders. We're up to DSM-5 right now, so they revise it every 15, 20 years because it gets criticized all the time every time they revise it, so they try to make it more valid, more reliable. They always fail, and we can talk about that later. But up until DSM-2, homosexuality was still a mental illness, and psychiatry, really what they thought in the 1940s, 1950s, that to be a progressive... Was to be somebody who no longer viewed homosexuality as a crime or a sin, and that if we could only make it a mental illness that could be treated, that's certainly going to be a better deal for homosexuals. That was their thinking, you know. So we'll treat it. Of course, homosexuals—they were way behind the times. They didn't realize there was all this. By the late 1960s, you had gay activism, you had Stonewall, and of course, gay activists were realizing this is no upgrade, you know, to to move us from just. For being sinners, to being mentally ill, for our homosexuality, so they were enraged, and they protested, and they won this battle. This was one of the great battles. Um, and there was a recent documentary that was put out about this called "Cured," uh, going through the whole battle about how gay activists, basically intimidated, scared, frightened, did everything. You politically activists, fantastic political activism they had some insider psychiatrists who hadn't come out yet who helped them and and they won this battle to eliminate abolish uh, homosexuality as mental illness in 1973 so part of the interesting thing for that besides being a great victory for gay activists was that in the 1970s it was one more um, nail in the coffin for psychiatry that it was obvious to almost everybody that this is not a scientific thing you can't you, you know most you know you can't get rid of cancer or diabetes by activism right so this must be a political thing and so people got thinking a lot more and that was the era where you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest One best picture in 1975 there's much more critical thinking about this whole thing called psychiatry and so it became like it, more people thought like well maybe it's not just homosexuality that's just this political thing that's not really a valid, um, scientifically valid disease or disorder. Maybe all of these things are, at least a bunch of them. So that was one that got abolished. That rarely happens in the history of psychiatry. Mostly they're renamed, like things like it used to be bipolar, it used to be manic depression. Now it's everybody's got bipolar disorder and ADHD attention deficit hyperactivity disorder has gone through many many different names and there's more increases so the DSM's gone 1952 it was like that then each one by night nine, but in 19 uh, the, the 2013 DSM5 it's like that more and more people get pathologized and there's a lot of incentives for it to increase for the medicalization of of everyday life, if you will. There's a lot of drug company incentives, psychiatry gets more power, but there's also other societal political incentives which we could get to.
0: Uh, once upon a time, at least in the US South, that there was a mental illness that would cause enslaved people to try to free themselves, uh, which seems even more ridiculous than homosexuality as a mental illness. But are they all like that? Are some of them that bad? Are all of them that bad? What's the, what's the takeaway here?
1: Well, it depends who you're talking to. Okay, so certainly some, you know, but runaway slave in 1851. Now, to be fair, this is before the American Psychiatric Association. This is some renegade Louisiana guy named Dr. Samuel Cartwright. And that people just use that example not to critique the American Psychiatric Association, but just to talk about the notion of invalidity. All right, I think it's an important scientific notion to know that just because you call something an illness or a disease, as Samuel Cartwright called runaway slaves, Dreadomania patients, you know, it doesn't mean it's true. So that's an important thing in science to, to evaluate whether something's valid or not. Um, and you know whether you know whether you. I think it's an important thing, and this is an also important Spinoza notion. When he was evaluating whether something's truthful or not, he had three kinds of knowledge. And the first kind of knowledge um, was one that you couldn't really trust to give you valid truths, or what he called um adequate ideas that was the kind of synonym in back in in those days for validity and if you use this first kind of knowledge which included an opinion Okay, it included a hearsay, included a few other things, but opinion was part of this first kind of knowledge. And basically, when you take a look at all of these so-called diseases, illnesses, and disorders in the DSM, they're all based on opinion of a very small group of people. So there's this elite group, a task force that the American Psychiatric Association assigns to study this problem, and they come up with a new DSM. We know the majority of people on this task force have financial links to drug companies, so they have incentive to pathologize more and more of our human behavior and I'll leave it up to people a lot of people may be watching a show like yours would laugh at something like oppositional defiant disorder which the symptoms of that by the way when they took out uh, homosexuality in the DSM-3 they included a lot more kids diagnoses, which I guess they figured out they weren't going to get a lot of protests from eight, nine nine-year-olds. It was harder for them to organize than for adult gay activists. I don't know if they thought that through all the way, but that's what's happened. So you have oppositional defiant disorder comes in in 1980. It's interesting for me. It's no accident Ronald Reagan becomes elected president in 1980. You know, oppositional defiant disorder becomes an illness. It becomes a real shift. Of like America becoming to a more authoritarian society. You know, you elect a president who got famous being the strong man who put down student revolts in California, and now you've got this illness called oppositional defiant disorder that everybody says, yeah, we'll go with that. Well, at least psychiatry did. And the symptoms, I should tell folks, I'll give them all you need are like four of eight symptoms. And some of the symptoms are one often argues with adults. That's a symptom, often refuses to comply with adult requests and rules. Often, you know, uh, annoys adults. Often is annoyed by adults. It goes on, and you know, for me, for a lot of guys like me, it's like I don't, I didn't have any friends who were in oppositional defiant disorder. There's almost no famous person I've ever respected. You know, Spinoza was oppositionally defiant disorder. All his friends were. And so, one of the things, though, that's really interesting when I give this talk to. Ex-patient activists, you know, psychiatric survivors—that whole population—they're laughing in the audience about something about oppositional defiant disorder. When I'm giving this talk to psychiatrists or psychologists, or whenever I talk to them, you know, they're they're going like. You know, that does sound like a disorder. These people, these young people are very, uh, they create a lot of tension. They're, they're very inconvenient, you know, like they need to be treated. And, you you know, you, and my first reaction is like, weren't you ever oppositionally defiant disorder in your entire life? Didn't you ever refuse to comply with adults? And then I look at their faces and I go, like, maybe not. Maybe they've never done that. And so when they see somebody, and this is an important element, when you see somebody so different than who you are, and they're creating some degree of tension, they're inconvenient, then, then it's an easy thing to say, well, they're mentally ill. you know. And, and for some people, they feel that they are actually giving... That, that's a more tolerant thing to do than saying that they're morally bad.
0: It seems like it's a matter of degree, right? If there were someone incapable of ever obeying anything in their life, that could be a problem. But these people who will see a line and go get in it without knowing what it's for or... Tell a Tonight Show a questioner, yes, you should bomb such and such a fictional country. You know, there's a there's a problem at the other end of the spectrum. Right. But to but to call either one a mental illness suggests some sort of scientific measurement that 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 hasn't happened. Right.
1: Right. These are all opinions. And so people can argue, Real, you know, people, some things back in, you know, for hundreds, you know, thousands of years. Things, some things were obvious sins for some people, you know, like, oh yeah, there's no doubt that's a sin. But for other things, people debated and they questioned, and it's the same thing here. Now, some folks would say, like, okay, you know, they would say, you know, maybe these oppositional defined disorders, certainly homosexuality and trypophobia, these are not valid things, and maybe this oppositional defiant disorder is not valid. Maybe free school ADHD. I should tell you, there's a new one. They're using more and more three-year-olds who talk too much. These literally, the symptoms who talk too much, who uh, won't pay attention to detail, who won't wait till a question is given before they answer it. You know, they're preschool ADHD. I mean, so some people say, okay, that's absurd. That's crazy. But certainly there's something like schizophrenia, like people who have these delusions and, and, and hallucinations. Well, if you talk to most people don't get a chance to talk to people who've been in that state I have most mental health professionals unfortunately they only see people when they're in this state that looks so scary so frightening so crazy and they they look so you know that that they that that it makes sense that they have a mental illness they don't talk to these folks after they've gone through these states and and sometimes there was reasons that they were acting like that and that it was part—it was just a kind of a normal human variation. So, for example, it would surprise a lot of people to know that hearing voices. Well, by some studies, oh, you know, five—you know, five to twenty-eight percent of people hear voices. I've talked to a lot of folks out there who they just—the difference between them and somebody else were when they heard their voices. They didn't tell anybody. They—they they didn't tell their parents. They didn't tell any doctors. their voices were kind of interesting, and they went through life, and 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 nothing. They didn't get hospitalized. And then other folks. Who have these voices and innocently, naively tell the wrong authorities, a teacher, a parent, or a doctor, and boom, they're locked up. And before they know what happens to them, their treatment, how they're coerced. Creates rage. They become labeled a mental health mental patient. So the whole idea there's actually something called a hearing voices network right now. I talk a lot about it in uh, in the book of of like people who like say like this is the way you really want to deal with folks who hear voices. The big problem is not the voices. The big problem is people being scared of them. The person themselves being frightened with them. The the the, the professionals around them. And that's what creates people like being out of control. So. Even things like that, I give you a, a. Besides this whole issue of validity, okay, there's two issues really, at least two important issues when you're talking about the science of these disorders. So let's say even if you believe that oppositional defiant disorder or preschool ADHD, let's say you believe these things are diseases or disorders, or you believe, you know, Bruce, you're wrong. If you have bizarre delusions, you are a schizophrenic, which is in the DSM-4. That was good enough. If you have bizarre delusions, that was good enough. Well they' they did a study of fifty senior psychiatrists to ask them like, "Can we all agree on what's bizarre? And they could not. they could not de- agree. So, Think about it. If I meet you know David Swanson, Dr. Swanson, the psychiatrist, your idea of a bizarre delusion would be spending billion a billion dollars on a F-35 that flies around in the air and believing that that's creating more security for your society, for you that and me. That's an obvious bizarre delusion. But not, and so we, if you and I were psychiatrists, I guess I guess we could we could hospitalize, we could we could classify paranoid schizophrenia. All of these all these folks in Congress who vote for that issue. Um, and if they deny it, then we can say they have no insight. And we can say they have a anosognosia, which is if you have no insight. Then we could coerce them into treatment. But I think people have to understand these are all opinions, and you can't even if you believe something is a valid illness, you've got a problem scientifically. You can't get agreement. You can't, and you have no reliability. And therefore, if you don't have reliability, you don't have validity. All science, when you're trying to associate these things with brain defects or genetics, or it just it just garbage in, garbage out.
0: It, it, Bruce Levine's uh, book is called A Profession Without Reason. Uh, I highly recommend it. Um, if you, With any mental illness, I mean, there are a lot more of them than the ones we've mentioned so far. If you take two different psychiatrists and the same patient, do they arrive at the same diagnosis? Uh, is there any predictability in terms of, of psychiatrists arriving at the same diagnosis of the same patient? sorry
1: <laughs> um well no the answer is no on that i mean they did field trials on the uh, dsm five after it came out and they tried to they they tried to see if it was reliable and they, were, they, were, they used something called a Kappa statistic to see if people agree. And people were given heavy training, unlike most clinicians, on to, to assess some, whether somebody was a certain disease or disorder. And they've done these trials over and over. One of the great myths was that when they changed over the DSM and DSM-3 to use these behavioral checklists, that it may not improve validity, but certainly we'd have reliability. And the and, But when you do do the actual research, they don't have reliability on that. Um, so people, and you can see, you know, think about it when you see, like, for example, most of these kids would get labeled as ADHD. Um, they, what happens to them, it, the process starts in a classroom. Some teacher, they're not getting, you know, they're not paying attention in a classroom because they're not interested, they're bored or for whatever reason and you know that's that starts the process somebody's opinion whereas with some other person that kid you see i see it all the time i see kids who are you know labeled as not paying attention you know and and with me whatever you know they, they can pay attention plenty of times. so these things are very subjective um how these diagnoses are made no blood test no brain scan no objective measures so you know that that's the the, the answer the answer the simple answer is you could debate validity, but there is no debate that you can't, you, they're not reliable, the, the, these these uh, diagnoses.
0: Which doesn't seem like much of a problem if it were just offering an opinion, but these are professionals with the power to to coerce treatment, if, if not treatment slash punishment, right?
1: Yes, right, right. And that's where you see where you know the kind of part of the political role there's multiple political roles of psychiatry and one of the things um that you see one of the great roles of psychiatry there's no doubt there's a lot of people out there in society that people find inconvenient teachers find certain kids in a classroom inconvenient, parents find certain kids inconvenient, our society at large finds certain people inconvenient who are not committing any crime. So what do you do with those people in our society? Well, that's psychiatry's major role. That's why psychiatry, you know, they're, they're kind of like, most most other people in medicine are not really feel great about like forcing people into a hospital, you know, course treatment, but psychiatry takes on that role and that's really what some folks have talked about this is why they get a free pass scientifically um, because they exercise that kind of role in society and the question really is like do you really want to have them doing that do you want to have psychiatry being the ones who are controlling people and that's coercing and controlling in the way that they do or do you want to rethink what you're doing, what, doing with people? Why they become inconvenient, and who do you want? How do you want to treat with folks who are inconvenient? Do you want to keep this process going? Of the way, and that, that for me feels like a very legitimate question. But it would be taboo in establishment psychiatry.
0: And yet, some some surprising things in reading your book are are not taboo, including lying to patients, uh, nobly noble lies uh, told to patients, right?
1: Right. One of the things that people uh, of all the probably most famous noble as I have that chapter on three noble lies, is this whole idea of a chemical brain imbalance. So for many years, we knew that psychiatrists had this idea that uh, schizophrenia is caused by too much dopamine, depression is caused by not enough serotonin. And once these commercials started happening on television, which was the mid 90s, drug companies realized, oh, wow. This is this. This is let's let's go with this theory because this is going. Most people are not going to use antidepressants. They knew historically, but if we could convince people that they have they're depressed because they have low levels of serotonin and these SSRI drugs, these serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, they restore, they correct this imbalance. That's going to work for sure, and it did. It was a brilliant kind of marketing sales campaign. The thing was, by the 1990s, there was already the science had looked at this issue, where the people who were depressed had low levels of serotonin, and they, they had discarded this whole theory. And we could, if you're interested, I could talk to you about what the research was done, but they didn't talk about this psychiatry because it gave them a lot more power, and, and drug companies, they had begun to partner and brag about this partnership It was an APA American Psychiatric Association medical director who was proud proud of this partnership they had with drug companies and so this was a good good deal for both of them to have everybody believe in finally though there was enough stuff coming out by around 2011 establishment insider psychiatry finally was being more open like that we have discarded we jettisoned this theory so a guy I talk about a lot is a guy named Ronald Pies who is a big shot insider psychiatrist that the editor emeritus at something called the psychiatric times and he called this chemical imbalance there he literally used the phrase urban legend and he talked about you know no well-informed psychiatrist that ever believed this but it was really interesting for me he comes out with this in 2011. 2012, Elise Spiegel over at NPR she does this whole story where she says like wait a minute I mean, my grandfather, which she doesn't talk about this in the story, but I knew this. Her her grandfather was and president of the American Psychiatric Association, and a guy named John Spiegel. But when she was seventeen, she was. You know, depressed, she tells this whole story on air. And her parents, I guess she was middle class, upper middle class, they take her to Johns Hopkins and she hears the same story everybody else here, that she's depressed because she has low levels of serotonin and we could correct it with these drugs. And then she finds out that this isn't true, and she goes does this whole story on It's still archived. People could listen to it, and she talks to these psychiatrists and they tell her things like, Well, if we told people well, once people believe that in this chemical imbalance theory, then then they would be more comfortable being depressed, they'd be more comfortable taking. Taking their medication. If you if you try to give people too complex ideas, you know um, that 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 makes them even more anxious. You got to give them something simple. So these were the things that sh- she was told by researchers later on why they kept on going on with this theory. But you know, if you ask most Americans, even most primary care doctors who are most responsible, I should tell you. For prescribing psychiatric drugs much more than psychiatrists if you ask most of them I haven't seen a poll recently but I would bet you the majority still believe in this chemical imbalance theory just like WMDs there was a, a, a you know a couple of years ago I saw a poll uh, on how many Americans still believe that WMDs were found in Iraq and it was like among Republicans majority It's like you know over 50% of Republicans and so it's the whole thing that great scientific critic Carl Sagan used to talk about like if you bam, if you get bamboo once you get bamboozled, it's hard to ever let go of that bamboozle. You get attached to this idea. So that's one of the wild things that they've already abandoned this psychiatry. They finally abandoned this idea of this chemical imbalance theory. And they moved on to some other guy ideas like circuitry defects or something like that. You know, But most people don't know about that.
0: But people who we have just a few minutes left, Bruce Levine, the people who post comments underneath reviews that good people like me write about good books like yours haven't moved on from it, not in the least uh and and of course as you explain in the book, if these drugs are no better than placebos or sitting and doing nothing for time passing uh, that still means quite a number of people have taken the drugs and gotten better whether the drugs had anything to do with it or not, right?
1: Right. I mean, that's what we know. When that, That's why bloodletting existed for 3,000 years. I mean, that's why you do experiments to see whether it's mere t- passage of time or expectations that it's fixing something or the actual therapeutic thing that you're, you're using. And that's, that's why real scientists do randomized controlled double blinds. And we can that's a whole other. But I think, you know, in the couple of minutes that we have left here, I I I think it's real important for people to understand the political nature of psychiatry. If you could get people to believe that they're anxious, they're depressed, they're not paying attention because of some individual defect, whether it's a biochemical defect, or an electrical defect, or even a cognitive behavioral defect, you know, you don't get, you have people who are like accepting the the status quo, the societal political status quo. It's in some ways more, it's more powerful than a heavily armed police force than get people to think like, well, maybe I'm depressed, maybe I'm anxious because I'm alienated from doing, I've got this ridiculous student loan debt, you know, on and on, I hate this, I'm working in Amazon, this like incredibly alienating situation here, where I'm just moving boxes around um, and so the more that you can get people to believe whether the individual uh, that you're just not whether it's not believing in God not going to church enough or you've got some biochemical defect the more that you can get people to believe that your depression your anxiety all your problems are, are because of your individual problems you know the, the people at the top of the status quo they win and that's why one of the reasons even folks besides the drug companies who love the, all of this stuff people at the top of the hierarchy you know, they they will keep this thing going.
0: It 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 really is is political, as you mentioned, when you consider all the crazy things that are acceptable uh, from a, a grand variety of mainstream religions to political religions and environmentally destructive and and war causing behaviors. You know, are all perfectly acceptable. Um, it's it's it, it's. A, a very odd situation the book is incredible the book is called a profession without reason the crisis of contemporary psychiatry untangled and solved by spinoza it will make you want to go out and and read spinoza by the way free thinking and radical enlightenment by our guest bruce levine bruce thank you very very much uh, again for coming on talk world radio great chatting with you david There is no way to peace, peace is the way.